All right. Good evening to you here and to you watching from home or Starbucks or wherever you find yourself. Uh, so we are continuing along in our series um, talking about deconversion, uh, deconstructing deconversion, trying to break down why this keeps happening. Why on earth are so many people, it seems, um, at least famous people, uh, that are walking away from Christianity in a very public way. And so we've talked about a number of these high-profile accounts of Christian leaders, um, thought leaders, who have, for whatever reason, decided that the faith is no longer for them. Uh, Today, we are going to be looking at the story of Marty Sampson. Now, Marty Sampson might not immediately sound like a familiar name to you. Um, Does anyone know who Marty Sampson is? Okay, a couple of you. So, Marty Sampson is someone whose songs you have definitely sung in church. In fact, the one that we just sang, um, Oh Praise the Name, uh, was written by Marty Sampson. Um, he wrote songs like, There is Nothing Like, All I Need Is You, and, uh, and the song that, that we just sang. Marty Sampson was one of the original and one of the most um, longest tenured worship leaders at Hillsong. And Hillsong worship, of course, is one of the most popular, um, almost ubiquitous uh, worship teams um, in the country. Uh, a while back, he wrote a song called Devotion. And this song is, as the title suggests, about devotion to Jesus and how our devotion to Jesus is something that lasts um, for eternity. He did an interview, uh, and this was probably 12 to 15 years ago. Um, he did an interview with um, uh, a Christian magazine where he talked about writing this song. And there was something that he said in this interview that sort of became um, a a sign of what might come later. In that interview, he, he said that he expected that Jesus would come back by the time he was 15 years old. And that he was disappointed that it didn't happen. He was raised in the church and, and for some reason in his upbringing was led to believe that there was a particular timeline on the return of Jesus. And so he even said in this video, I was really banking on that 15-year mark where, where I was 15 years old. And then it didn't happen. And he said after that, you just keep living. You keep going. Your love keeps evolving. Your faith keeps evolving. But that may have been the first domino to fall. And over the next 12 years, the dominoes continued to fall behind the scenes where no one else could see. That, that seed of disappointment grew and grew and grew. Now in that time, again, Marty Sampson became one of the most prolific worship leaders on planet Earth. Uh, and, and though... Maybe most people who are in church don't recognize his name. Again, his, his work has been enjoyed uh, by millions and millions of people. But then in 2020, he, uh, along with so many others that we've talked about, 
announced his own deconversion on Instagram. It seems like Instagram is the place to go uh, to tell people that you're not a Christian anymore. Um, so uh, I don't know if that means anything, but it seems like this is continuing to happen on Instagram. And this is what he said. His, his Instagram announcement read like this. Time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith. And it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I am so happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. This is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love, yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. I'm not in anymore. I want genuine truth. Not the I just believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. I got so much more to say, but for me, I'm keeping it real. Unfollow if you want. I've never been about living my life for others. All I know is what's true to me right now, and Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. I could go on, but I won't. Love and forgive, absolutely. Be kind, absolutely. Be generous and do good to others, absolutely. Some things are good no matter what you believe. Let the rain fall. The sun will come up tomorrow. Now, there was a backlash, of course, from this announcement. Lots of people uh, went onto their soapboxes and either attacked the things that Samson said or attacked Samson himself. Um, There were some good responses to this, some thoughtful and well-reasoned responses. And there were some other responses that weren't so thoughtful or gracious um, or seemingly well thought out. And so um, he made a follow-up announcement a short time after where he said, I have and continue to analyze the arguments of prominent Christian apologists and biblical scholars. And I'm open-minded enough to consider the arguments of atheist debaters and debaters from other religions. If the truth is true, it will remain so regardless of my understanding of it. Which I agree. A hundred percent I agree. If the truth is true, it will remain so regardless of whether or not we understand it. Now, of course, you can tell that he made this statement uh, probably because of the, the words that he repeated over and over in his original announcement, no one talks about it. There were a lot of people that jumped on him, and we're going to come back to this a few times throughout this message. A lot of people that jumped on him and, and, and directly addressed him saying, no one talks about this stuff. And, and people were saying, how can you say that no one talks about these things? The church has been wrestling with these things for thousands of years. And so thankfully, he followed up the announcement and said, okay, I, I, I am looking at some ways that people are talking about it. 
to the best of our knowledge, there hasn't been any type of announcement or update on Samson to, uh, to let us know that his um, standing is any different than it was before. So as far as we know, this is still where he is. And among other things that we'll be looking at, what we have here is an example that shows the damage of poor theology, poor doctrine, poor teaching and understanding of Scripture. What we have here, unfortunately, is a victim of false teaching. Because false teaching, as we're going to see, sets up unrealistic expectations. And these unrealistic expectations do nothing but let you down. Um, an apologist named Greg Kokel was asked the question, does faith in Jesus work? Seems like a practical question. And his answer was this, well that depends. What exactly are you expecting him to do? And that, I think, is a perfect answer to the question. Because if we are given expectations to put our faith in Jesus for things that Jesus never promised, never said, and are in fact sometimes the opposite of what he said and promised, then that is the type of faith that is going to disappoint us. It is the faith, it is the type of faith that is going to let us down, that is going to eventually lead to our own disillusionment and perhaps our own deconversion. I've repeated this over and over and over throughout this series, and it bears repeating again that so many people are deconverting because they've been given a false God, a false gospel, and a false representation of Scripture. And when they walk away from that God, they are led to believe there is no God. And so today, we're going to look at the damage of false teaching and how we need to contend for faith as Scripture teaches it. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Jude. Uh, Jude is right before Revelation. It is one chapter. Uh, 25 verses, we'll be reading uh, the entire um, book of Jude. Now, I will warn you from the very beginning, as some of you uh, already know, Jude is a weird book, all right? There's some strange stuff in here. And unfortunately, we're not going to have time to really dive into the weird stuff that's here because we're going to be looking at some of the practical side of things. Uh, Hopefully at a later date, we can come back and maybe ask the question, why is this even in here? Um, Looking at some of the weird stuff. So as we're reading this, um, especially if this is the first time that you've heard the book of Jude or read the book of Jude, there's going to be some stuff that's going to make you scratch your head and say, "Uh, what are you talking about, dude? Um, just know that uh, we'll touch on those things a little bit, but not really dive into them, um, and, and so we'll have to table that for later. Uh, with that riveting introduction, here is the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, And love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you 
to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion." These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, Through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Well, as much as anything else, we could say that Jude certainly is poetic. Um, He certainly has a way with words. He is forceful and flowery at the same time. Um, he is very unique in the way that he communicates 
um, in this letter. So, uh, we're going to jump right in. If you're taking notes, point number one, I think this is a record time for me to get to point one. Um, Point one is this. Lasting faith is contended for. Lasting faith is contended for. Um, John MacArthur, when he uh, wrote his commentary on the book of Jude, points out the fact that Jude is the only New Testament book that is exclusively dedicated to confronting apostasy. It's the only one exclusively um, uh, dedicated to confronting apostasy, meaning to defect from the true biblical faith. And so we don't find in here um, any direct quotes to the Old Testament, but he says that there are at least nine allusions to the Old Testament. And so he calls this an epistolary sermon, which could be called the Acts of the Apostates. Those are the words of John MacArthur. And so what we have here is a very short, very forceful treatise against those who have fallen away from the faith, and not just fallen away from the faith, but are now leading others to do the same. They are teaching false things within the church and doing damage to the faith of the other believers. And so Jude addresses the true believers at this point, telling them to be aware of these false teachers And he goes into length, raging against the false teachers, um, but urging them to contend for the faith. In the the first verse, Jude identifies himself as a bond servant, a bond slave of Jesus and the brother of James. And the consensus among scholars agree that Jude, like James, who wrote the book of James, is the half-brother of Jesus. So, this is a letter from Jesus' little brother. Okay, And like James, Jude, we, we learn from 1 Corinthians, did not follow after Jesus during the life of Jesus. Um, during the life of Christ, Jesus' own family were counted among those who thought that Jesus was nuts and, uh, and rejected him. But post-resurrection, James and Jude became pillars of the early church. These guys became leaders. Imagine imagine being in that position where you literally grew up with Jesus for for most of the time you thought that he was out of his mind and then you see him die and raise from the dead and ascend to heaven and then at that point you're like, "Oh my god. I mean, oh my brother. I mean both. My brother was God." And then becoming, again, like I said, a pillar of the faith. Jude became one of the men who was instrumental in ensuring that the true gospel was preached. And so we see that attitude in this passage. And so his first command that he gives, there are five of them, the first that he uh, gives is to contend for the faith. We find this in verse 3. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. So, we're going to find in this passage eventually five commands. 
The first is here, contend for the faith. The next one doesn't come until verse 17. So here between verses 3 and 16, he's going to go into, he's going to launch into this diatribe against the false teachers. But verse, uh, verse 3, he says, contend for the faith. Then in verse 17, he says, remember what the apostles taught. Then in verse 20, he says, build yourselves up in the faith and pray in the spirit. Then verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God as you wait for the mercy of Jesus. And then he says, uh, have mercy on those who doubt. And finally, snatch people out of the fire. So five commands are given in this book. Contend, remember, keep yourselves, have mercy, and rescue. So let's look specifically at this word, contend. Contend for the faith. One commentary puts it like this. That this word uh, means in the Greek to earnestly contend for. It is an expressive compound infinitive which only appears right here in the, Old Test- in the New Testament. It is the only use. And the simple form of the verb is agonizomai where we get the word agonize. To agonize over something. And so this word was commonly used in connection with the Greek stadium to talk about a strenuous struggle to overcome an opponent, as in a wrestling match. It was used elsewhere in the ancient world to talk about conflict, contest, debate, lawsuit, And wrapped up in this word is the idea of the expenditure of all of one's energy in order to prevail. So this word means to expend all of your energy fighting for, wrestling for, contending for the true gospel. Fighting to make sure that the true gospel is the one that is preached. Now, one of the things that we have to stop and recognize here is that this does not mean attacking people who don't believe. And that is often what we do, right? We attack groups of people, and we lob our theological bombs at them. That is not what's being uh, commanded here. To contend for the true faith doesn't mean that we fight against people, because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the powers and authorities, the principalities of darkness. So what this means is that we are preaching, we are representing, we are emphasizing, we're confirming the true gospel, and we are fighting against the ways that the gospel has been twisted. It means that we point out false teaching when we see false teaching. It means identifying those falsehoods, pointing them out to the brotherhood, And fighting to make sure that our people don't fall prey to those types of falsehoods. Which is why so many times you will hear me standing up here giving specific examples of false doctrines that are taught in in the church um, worldwide. Sometimes you'll even hear me use specific names of people. I'll get to one later that are known for teaching false things. Because I don't want there to be any mistake. Um, And and again, this is not to attack a person, okay? This is not to attack um, an individual, but rather to attack um, the teaching itself. And this is part of the reason why we're having 
this series. It, it breaks our hearts when somebody like Marty Sampson walks away from the faith. We ask the question, how could someone who wrote the words that we just sang a few minutes ago, the, these beautiful uh, words of, of worship, how could someone who writes that fall away? And it's heartbreaking but it provides us opportunity to examine why it happened and, and to contend against the false gospel that contributed to his fall. Marty Sampson, based on what we know about his theological upbringing and based on what we see from his own words, Marty Sampson was taught that Jesus would be returning to earth by the time that he was 15. But the Bible tells us that no one knows the date or the hour when Jesus is coming back. Marty Sampson was taught that the truth of our faith would be confirmed by a plethora of modern miracles. But nowhere in the Bible is that actually promised. Sampson was taught that the confirmation of the truth of Christianity is in changed lives. But then he realized that lots of beliefs change people's lives. But the truth is that our faith is not proven true simply by the fact that people live better. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that our faith is proven true by Jesus rising from the dead. That is what our faith rests upon. Marty Sampson apparently thinks that Christianity is not any different from other religions because lots of religions teach people to be kind and moral and loving. But the Bible teaches us that our faith is not about being kind and loving. Our faith is about Jesus. Being kind and loving is an expression of that love for Jesus. And apparently, Samson believes that the Bible is full of contradictions. And one can only hope that someone shows him that it actually isn't. These are falsehoods. These are things that he was brought up, taught, In the church. And those things failed. And so when those things fell, so then did he. And part of what we have to do is contend for the faith against letting things like that infiltrate the church. Contending for the gospel means that not only do we preach the truth from the pulpit up here, we also then massage that truth into our conversations with each other, with one another. In, in, in the, the conversations that we have after the message, in the conversations that we have throughout the week, in the conversations that we have when we're texting each other or when we're hanging out, spending time, these are the types of things that need to be in our conversations. Marty Sampson needed to have people around him who would have these conversations with him. Otherwise, he would be led to say something like, no one talks about it. He needed to have people around him who would have conversations where he could open up about his doubts. And somebody in those conversations would contend for the faith on his behalf. Sadly, that seems to have been missing. Let this be a church where we contend for the faith and part of doing that is contending for each other. 
One of the things that I think is interesting to note in this, uh, in this chapter is in verse 4. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that Jude tells us that false teachers have crept their way into the church unnoticed. He specifically used that word, unnoticed. They crept in unnoticed. And the reason why I say that's interesting is because we are talking about a church that is in its infancy, okay? Christianity is in its infancy. This is the first generation, okay? Again, remember who's writing this. This is Jesus' younger brother, okay? We are one generation removed from Jesus. In fact, it's less than that because we're talking about people who are alive at the same time as Christ. Jesus' little, bro- little brother is alive adm- admonishing the church. And so it took no time at all. We're, we're talking about a number of a few years. No time at all for there to be people who came in to teach bad doctrine. Unnoticed. Unnoticed because they looked the part. They sounded the part. They seemed to be living the part. When you looked at these people, you would think, oh yeah, these are followers of Jesus. These teachers seemed like they were legit. And the believers in the church just went along because it seemed like it made sense. Less than one generation removed from Jesus himself to people who literally walked with Jesus himself. And so, if it could happen then, man, you're crazy if you think it's not happening now. Thousands of years later. Thousands of years removed. That is why it is so important that we know the truth so that we can contend for the truth. There is an attitude that is all over the American church, the Western church, where the, the average believer is just a spectator, where the duty of a believer is to come into church, sing some songs, hear a message, and then leave, and nothing is different. And so the average believer is biblically illiterate, theologically illiterate. The average believer has so little knowledge about what our faith actually teaches, they can be swayed by a false teacher who looks like they're just as good as anyone else. It is the responsibility of every single believer to know the faith. If you don't know the faith, you cannot contend for the faith. You just can't. You can't defend something that you don't even know yourself. Let's make sure that we are not the type of church where we have seats filled with biblically illiterate people. Know the faith. It is my job to shepherd and teach and lead, but you must do the work when you leave. Okay? What is the one thing that I say every single week before we end? Anyone know? The mission starts after church. 
If you're paying attention, you will notice that I literally say that every single week. Every week. The reason why is because it's true. What really matters is what happens after you walk out the door. Because you are going to be the one who determines how you live this out for the rest of the week. You're here for an hour and a half. That's it. What's going to happen after you leave? That's when the real mission starts. That is where you have to contend for the faith. So, moving on. Point number two. False teachers proliferate a false gospel. False teachers proliferate a false gospel. Now, like I said, there's a lot of weird stuff in this letter. Some strange, hard to understand things. And unfortunately, we don't really have time to dive deeply into those things. But briefly, he takes these false teachers and he compares them to two groups here in the first uh, few verses. In verses 5 through 7, he compares the false teachers to fallen angels and to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. says, Now I want to remind you, although once you fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So, what is it exactly? We we could ask two questions. A, what exactly is going on? in these verses, and B, what is he using these stories as an example for? What, what's the purpose for, for the stories that he's putting here? And that's kind of where we're going to put our focus. What is he using these stories for? Well, both of these groups, these fallen angels and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, were guilty of something very similar. They were guilty of placing their own kingdom above the kingdom of God. They were guilty of of putting their own glory, their own desires, their own wants, their own gain above submission to Jesus, above submission to the kingdom. Here on my arm I have tattooed kingdom over everything. Kingdom comes first. These two groups were guilty of exactly the opposite, that their kingdom came first. And so he compares the false teachers to these two groups because they are guilty of putting their own kingdom above the kingdom of God. Now, I would also submit to you that that is also happening in so many churches today. Instead of teaching and preaching the true gospel, which by the way, the Bible promises is something that the world is going to be offended by, these churches are preaching a soft, cushy, everyone is good because God is Mr. Rogers type of message. Marty Sampson was raised in a church that preaches a name it and claim it gospel. 
a church that promises all of God's blessings and all of God's miracles if you just have enough faith. Now, I love many of the songs that are written by Hillsong. But it's no wonder why tens of thousands of people flock to the Hillsong churches. Because with that type of message, who wouldn't, right? With that type of promise of health and wealth and blessing, who wouldn't want that? Health and wealth and a comfortable life if all you do is just have enough faith. Hillsong was founded by Brian Houston. um, And in his 1999 book, You Need More Money, let me pause there for dramatic emphasis, his book titled, You Need More Money, Unsurprisingly, the prosperity gospel is all throughout. And he says this. We have to become comfortable with wealth and break the bondage, guilt, and condemnation of impoverished thinking. Poverty is definitely not God's will for his people. In fact, all his promises talk of is blessing and prosperity. Now, One wonders, when reading a statement like that, if Brian Houston ever read, for example, the Apostle Paul, uh, who experienced the opposite. Or if he read of the disciples who all but one died a martyr's death. Or if he noticed that the vast majority of those who have experienced the blessings of eternal life also aren't rich. He would say, that's not God's will. I don't find that anywhere in the pages of Scripture. And so we have to ask the question, is it any wonder why Marty Sampson is disillusioned? Being raised with a faith like that. Jude makes it clear here that false teachers are more focused on their own kingdom than the kingdom of God. Now, this is not me trying specifically in this moment to say that Brian Houston is not saved or is a false teacher. Though we could go there. But it seems that with a message like that, his concern is more for an earthly kingdom than it is for an eternal kingdom. Jesus made it very clear that the path to righteousness is narrow and few will find it. Now, I also don't want this to come across in any way like I'm saying megachurches are bad. This is not an indictment against megachurches. I'm not in any way saying that if a church is large, they must be preaching the wrong thing. No, every, every church, regardless of size, should only be examined based on one standard, and that's the word of God. Big church, small church, medium church, anywhere in between, we need to only look at the word of God as the standard. And wherever the true gospel becomes twisted, in order to grow an earthly kingdom, that needs to be contended against. And so here, Jude minces no words whatsoever. He says, false teachers are like fallen angels and wicked cities. There's no question about what he's saying. Then in verse 8, he further clarifies. 
And he says that these people are relying on their dreams. Verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So, these are people who are relying on their dreams. In other words, these are people who claim to have prophetic visions, and they use these prophetic visions in all of their teaching. And people are convinced because these things seem so real to them. Um, in our campus ministry the other night at BCM, um, I used the example of televangelist Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts, who tearfully and passionately told his followers in 1985 that God spoke to him in a vision. Jesus appeared to him face to face, telling him, you must raise $8 million for this ministry by the end of the year, or I will end your life. So, he went to his followers and in tears said, God's going to kill me if you don't send me money. Send me money. And you might think that something like that wouldn't work, but the opposite happened. He raised $9.3 million because people saw that and were like, oh, it's a vision from God. No, it wasn't. (laughs) At, At the very worst, it's an outright lie. At the very best, it's a delusion. And only God and Oral Roberts know which is the case. But Jude tells us that these teachers are following their dreams instead of following authority. He says these people are relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority. So their authority is their own dream. He he flat out says that they reject authority. And in so doing, defiling the flesh and blaspheming the spiritual realm. What does that look like? Well, verse 9 is one of those weird verses that, that we can't spend too much time on, but it says this. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Okay. He talks about this situation where apparently the devil and Michael are contending for the body of Moses. Uh, We do know from Deuteronomy that while the Israelites moved into the promised land, Moses remained outside the promised land and died. So we don't know what happened to his body. This verse tells us that apparently there was some fight of some sort in the spiritual realm. We don't find this in the Old Testament, so where is Jude getting this? Probably his brother. Right? That's my best answer. He probably learned this from his brother. If so, I would say not a bad authority. Okay? If he learned this, if, if, if he's sitting at the dinner table and Jesus one day is like, oh yeah, Michael and the devil fought over Moses' body. Like you can imagine all the forks went down and everything was silent and like all the eyes turned and Jesus was like, oh yeah, that, that happened. 
And maybe that's why during his life they all thought he was nuts. But then at the, after the resurrection, realizing he was God, at this point Jude goes, oh yeah, Jesus said something about that. Just a guess on my part. Now, he says this in the context of, again, talking about false teachers. So, apparently, he is using this situation with the archangel Michael as a positive example to contrast against the false teachers. Whatever it is that's actually happening in this, in this verse, he says that Michael did not presume to have more authority than what the Lord had given him. He left judgment against the enemy up to God instead of taking it upon himself. He, he, he the Archangel Michael, who according to what we know is the number one guy in terms of angels, not even he took it upon himself, but rather said, the Lord rebuke you. He gave all the authority to the Lord. So I appreciate the way that one commentary puts it, saying, Jude's argument runs as follows. The intruders insult demons, but the archangel Michael did not even presume to blaspheme the devil himself, but left his judgment to God. If Michael, as an angel with high authority, did not even presume to judge Satan, how can the opponents be so filled with pride that they insult demons who have a certain glory even though they've subsequently sinned? So, if we're looking for a real-world example of what this might look like, I would say, look no further than Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland is an infamous example of televangelism and prosperity gospel at its zenith. He is also a great example of crazy eyes. I encourage you highly if you ever want to be terrified look up a picture of Kenneth Copeland especially one where he's smiling and just stare in his eyes for a moment okay you will be affected by it I promise so anyway Kenneth Copeland is a prolific prosperity gospel mogul Now, unsurprisingly, in a twist of fate, uh, Kenneth Copeland went to school at Oral Roberts University and at one point was being directly mentored by Oral Roberts himself. So it's not a shock that he became what he became. Uh, Copeland has used his ministry, Kenneth Copeland Ministry. Um, Whenever it's named after yourself, I I, I think that's typically a bad sign. (laughs) But he's used his ministry to amass for himself a fortune that is reported to be somewhere in the $500 million range, milking his followers um, to finance his expensive ranch, his private jet, and even his own airport. And he's done many, many ridiculous things over the years, but there was one in particular that caught the attention of a lot of people, myself included. During the pandemic last year, He preached one sermon where he urged the people watching to touch the TV screen as he prayed and they would be healed of the coronavirus. He said another time that being afraid of COVID was putting faith in the devil and that God had assured him in a vision that the pandemic would pass 
as soon as enough Christians overwhelmed it with prayer. He also said that the pandemic was judgment from God for the ways that America was showing displays of hate toward Donald Trump. And doing so, he said, interfered with the divine protection that apparently America enjoyed because of Trump's presidency. But then, on March 29, 2020, things got downright hilarious. In this particular televised segment, Copeland boldly executed judgment on COVID-19, declaring it to be finished and over, and that he was speaking healing over the nation. Okay, remember, this is March 19, 2020. Then, he looked intently into the camera with his crazy eyes, and he proclaimed, Wind, almighty strong south wind, heat, burn this thing in the name of Jesus. Satan, you bow your knees, you fall on your face. And then, dramatic pause, shaky point, and a yell. COVID-19, I blow the wind of God on you. You are destroyed forever, and you'll never be back. Thank you, Lord. Let it happen. Now, I know what you're asking. I know what you're asking. What you're asking is, has that sermon clip been memed and remixed into a trap song? And the answer is yes, it has. And I encourage you to go onto YouTube and watch it for yourself. It is both hilarious and also deeply saddening. Hilarious because it's so ridiculous and catchy. Okay? You will find yourself singing it for a while. But also deeply saddening because people actually platformed this guy for over 40 years, believing in his false teaching, people funding him. He should have been laughed out of ministry 40 years ago. But instead, you have a guy standing there in a silk suit that probably cost hundreds of dollars, doing exactly what Jude just said, which is presuming to judge the spiritual world with authority that he was never given at all. He's contrasted with Michael, who said, the Lord has authority, not me. Look at how he describes this um, in verses 10 through 11. And then, you know, continuing until verse 16. Verse 11, he says, Woe to them! They walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. What did Cain do? Cain didn't give God his best. What did Balaam do? He sold, he tried to sell the blessings of God for money and perished in Korah's rebellion. What did Korah do? He presumed to take the people of God back to Egypt. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. In other words, they infiltrate and they shamelessly pretend to be one of you. 
shepherds feeding themselves, taking and fleecing the sheep for their own personal gain. Waterless clouds. What does a waterless cloud do? Nothing. It doesn't feed what's under it. It doesn't nourish the ground below. It just floats. Swept along by winds. There's no control. There's no anchor. There's no standard. It just goes everywhere. Fruitless trees in late autumn. What is that? A dead tree. A useless tree. Twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea. Back and forth. Casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Ain't no question here, like what his view is on these false teachers. He continues, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Um, I don't know if you noticed how many times he said the word ungodly there, right? He said, the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in an ungodly way and the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I think his point is that these people are ungodly. Grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. We need to be able to recognize these types of teachers in the church. And when we see them, we contend against the false teaching. We do whatever we can to recognize the truth, to speak and represent the truth, and contend for that truth among each other so that no one is led astray by them. Finally, point number three. We decide if no one talks about it. We decide if no one talks about it. It is up to us whether or not no one talks about it. In verse 17, Jude turns. This is a hinge verse. He's been speaking all these words against false teachers and all the ways that they have been besmirching the name of God. I couldn't pass, pass up the opportunity to use besmirching in a sermon. So all the ways that they have been besmirching the word of God. But now, after giving a very clear picture of these false teachers, now he turns to the believers. He speaks tenderly. He calls them beloved. He says, but you must remember, beloved. And so he rages against the besmirchers, And then he says, Beloved, listen to me. Hear me. Remember that the apostles and Jesus himself said that this was going to happen. He said that false teachers were going to come up. So you, beloved ones, pay attention. Now, you do these things in order to protect yourselves from them. Here's what you have to set in order 
so that you will not be deconstructed by them. And so we talked about the fact that there are five imperatives in Jude. We talked about the first one, contend. Now he comes to the next ones. The first is build. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. This word, build is a word that tells us that our faith is not passive. And and this is going to be something that I repeat uh, a couple of times. It is not something that just happens. And I would say that some people have deconstructed or begun to deconstruct because they never constructed in the first place. Again, so many people just come into a building, participate passively for an hour and a half, and then leave. And nothing happens the rest of the time. They are doing nothing to actually build the faith. Build their following after Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, What am I doing right now to actually build? Am I studying the truth? Am I exploring doubts? Am I asking questions? Am I reading books? Am I having conversations that are real and intimate? Do I have people who are holding me accountable? Am I holding anyone else accountable? What am I doing to build the faith and make it stronger. What better time than right now, right? The hope that I have is that no one here or or no one watching right now is actively deconstructing their faith. Now, if you are, hopefully this series is helping. But for those that aren't deconstructing at this point, what better time than now to build so that you don't get to a point where you feel like you have to deconstruct? What are you doing right now to proactively build on the right foundation? Again, the mission starts after church. The next imperative is the word keep. Verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I want to clarify here. Where he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. This is not referring to, what do you need to do to keep your salvation? That's, that's not what it's saying. It is not saying, you have to do certain things to make God continue to love you. That, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that your fellowship with God is not passive. There, there, is, there is a two-way street in a relationship, right? A relationship is two ways. And so we participate. God always loves. But you have to decide whether you want to walk in that love or not. Um, a commentator named Will McDonald uses an illustration of sunlight. Where he says, the sun is always shining. 
But you need to decide if you're going to walk in the shade or walk in the sunlight. Or if you're going to do something to block the sun's light from getting to you. If you put up an umbrella that blocks the sun's light, that's not on the sun. Okay? The sun isn't getting to you not because the sun isn't shining. It's because you're doing something to block it. And this can come in the form of rebellion. It can come in the form of sin. It can come in the form of a bunch of different things. What he's saying here is, keep yourself in the light. Keep walking in step with the Spirit. He says, you're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You're you're, you're living in an expectant way. You are making sure that the kingdom stays over everything. What are you doing to keep yourselves walking in the love of God? You decide whether you want to walk in God's love. God's love is always there. The next imperative is in verse 22. And it is perhaps one of the greatest takeaways that we need to walk away from the book of Jude with. Verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. One of the most important verses in all. All of scripture. Jude 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. This is something that the church flat out sucks at. That so many people across the world who claim to be followers of Jesus are terrible. Myself included. I I have fallen into this as well. Have mercy on those who who doubt. We must be loving and gracious to those who are doubting. In response to this story of Marty Sampson, Franklin Graham, who uh, is the son of Billy Graham, who in various ways I think has uh, deviated from his own father's um, ministry, another story for another time, he tweeted, in response to this. Now, Marty Sampson made his announcement on Instagram. Franklin Graham responds on Twitter. Not a great platform for real conversation either way. But this is what he tweeted. Franklin Graham tweeted, I doubt Marty Sampson ever had faith to begin with. He's in a very dangerous place. Shame on him. He will stand before God. Now, remember... He is only known, the the only reason why Franklin Graham is known at all is because of Billy Graham. And why is Billy Graham known? Billy Graham is known because he was the greatest evangelist in the modern era, leading millions of people to come to faith in Jesus. So the platform that Franklin Graham stands on is one of evangelism. He stands on a platform built on seeing people come to know Jesus. And standing on that platform in front of millions of people, he looks at a guy who's doubting his faith. He looks at a guy who, by his own admission, says, "Uh, okay, I'm not walking away, I'm just kind of waffling. And his response is, shame on him. He's going to stand before God. Wow, dude. (laughs) I mean, wow. That's how you're going to respond to people who express doubt? I don't want to be a part of your ministry if I'm ever experiencing any doubt of my own. Is this how Jesus responds to doubt? No. 
We've looked at examples of how Jesus responded to doubt. When we looked at the story of Boss Thomas, and we looked at the story of John the Baptist. In those stories, we have guys who express questions and doubts and are you who you say you are? And how does Jesus respond in those, in those stories? With grace and truth. With deep love. I want to remind us again of the tone of Jude, right? How his tone differs depending on who he's talking to. We just read all these verses of him raging out, okay? Like his brother Jesus, Jude rages at the false teachers. The false teachers are the object of anger, not the person who's doubting because of the false teachers, Jesus raged at the Pharisees, not at the man who said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus responded to them with grace, with love. He responded to them with the truth that they needed. And he did so in a way that invited them to follow after him, even if it cost them their lives. And for many of them, it did. Let's go back to Marty Sampson's announcement where he said, no one is talking about it. We might be tempted at those words to scoff, to respond like Franklin Graham incredulously. (laughs) Are you serious? No one's talking about it? But maybe, maybe what he's referring to is that no one in his circle is talking about it. Maybe he means that those who are around him are not talking about it. And if so, that's a problem with the circle, not with the faith. Marty Sampson doesn't actually mean that no one is talking about these questions. Remember his follow-up announcement where he's like, I'm reading apologists. So he knows that there are people who are talking about the questions. What he means is that he's never encountered those conversations at Hillsong. And perhaps, we don't know this, but perhaps he even tried to bring them up. Maybe in bringing them up, he was silenced. Just have faith. That's not faith. If so, that's a a shame. My friends, he brings up intellectual questions. The, The things that he's talking about are intellectual, philosophical questions. And those need to be examined. Those are questions that we need to talk about, need to ask in the context of our community. Marty Sampson said in his announcement, I want genuine truth, not just the I believe it kind of truth. And that is a good and valid thing to want. I completely support that. I want to have genuine truth, not just the I just believe in it kind of truth. So we have to ask the hard questions. We have to explore doubts instead of pretending that they aren't there. And that is one of the most important aspects about the church. This should be the place where you can run and grab someone and say, I need to talk about something that I'm wrestling with. I I need to talk about this question that I have. I don't understand this. Um, In another response to Samson, the the lead singer of Skillet, John Cooper, um, who I know Kayla's watching, is making a joke of a t-shirt that says, John Cooper screams comfort me. Uh, John Cooper said in response to this, dude, the church has been wrestling with these things for 1,500 years. 
What do you mean no one's talking about it? The, the church has been wrestling with it 1,500 years. But you see, the problem isn't that no one was talking about these things. The problem for Marty Sampson is that he was not talking about these things. He's obviously wrestling with these issues. But instead of him bringing these, peop- these issues to people who would listen, he kept them to himself. And, and he let them fester. And eventually these things became a cancer that ate away at whatever faith he had. So I urge you, don't let that be you. This church, hopefully, will be a place where you can explore these things in uplifting community. And so I will be the first to raise my hand and say, I beg you, please come and talk to me. I want this church to be a place where people cannot describe it with, no one talks about it. But listen, I can't just snap my fingers and make that happen. I cannot just create that by myself. If that's going to be true, that's up to every single one of us. We all play a part in that. Every one of us needs to sign up for that. Needs to be willing to speak up and be willing to listen and support when others speak up. We create that culture when we keep ourselves in the love of God. And we show the same mercy that was shown to us. And if we do, notice what it leads to, the last imperative, which is rescue. Verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To, show, to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He says that if we do this, the result is that people will be snatched out of the fire. People will be rescued from a faith that cannot save them. People will be rescued from a faith that cannot hold the weight of their doubts. <laughs> You're unbelievable. Um, in doing so, when we walk in this way, when we have this type of community, people that would be deconstructing otherwise, people that would be deconverting otherwise, hopefully, instead, will actually build a faith that lasts. Hopefully, in the conversations that we have, in the ways that we wrestle with our doubts together, in the ways that we get to the other side, in the ways that we contend, on the other side of that, people are snatched out of the fire. This is a mission that every one of us is a part of. Not just ministers, not just leaders, every single Christian. And so we get to decide if that's the kind of culture we're going to build here. I beg you, let that be the culture that we build. Um, before I get to the, doc- the doxology here at the end, um, as you know, my sermon title is uh, No One's Talking About It. And we get to decide. Um, my wife has suggested a tagline to the title as follows. Beloved, don't be besmirching, be snatching. So, thank you for that. Don't be besmirching, be snatching. (laughs) Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to him who is able to keep you from deconverting, to to him who is able to keep you from 
deconstructing and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word.